Um, if you have a Bible, you can grab it and pull it out. You know, we're going to be in Luke 23. We're in chapter 23 of 24. As Matt said earlier, we are getting close. We're getting close to the end, and then we'll start again with something else. So uh, let me say this as you turn to Luke 23. Last week, uh, Carl talked about the trial of Jesus, how Jesus is brought before the religious leaders and the people and the priests and Pilate and Herod, and how even though over and over again they find him innocent, he is ultimately rejected. He is rejected as king, he is rejected as the Lord, and he is sentenced to death. The closing statement from from last week's section says this, Pilate surrendered Jesus to their will, the will of the people. Pilate surrendered Jesus to the will of the people. Interesting to note here that when Jesus is surrendered to the will of humanity, the result is crucifixion and death. When we surrender our lives to the will of God, we find that there's life and hope and peace. And as we'll discover later in our passage this morning, paradise. God's will, paradise. Human will, execution and death. Pilate surrendered Jesus to their will. And today they will have their way with him. Today they will have him executed. Today they will hang Jesus on a cross. And as Luke, after 23 chapters, finally takes us to the cross, he wants us to understand this scene. He wants us to see this moment. He wants us to know what we are walking into. And so he introduces us to some other people who are walking into this moment as well. And he invites us to see the cross and what it looks like to follow a crucified king through their eyes. And what Luke will show us is that this is not a peaceful scene. This is not a peaceful death for Jesus. In fact, this entire scene has been very intentionally constructed by the Romans to be anything but peaceful. The road Jesus will take from his sentencing to the cross is a long, windy road. He would have walked virtually all the streets of Jerusalem. At the end of this long journey, he will find himself outside the city walls on a hilltop. Sometimes uh, crucified victims would be hung along a roadway. All of this to ensure one thing, as many witnesses as possible. The sign that Luke tells us will hang over Jesus on the cross is the sign he probably carried around his neck or that was carried in front of him. And it read, This is the King of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. This is what happens to people that mess with Rome. This is what happens to people who challenge our authority. If you're even thinking about rebellion or revolution or revolt, you might want to think again. In the middle of this spectacle, probably because of the many beatings that he has endured, Jesus does not have the ability to carry his cross any longer. And so somewhere along this road, um, it is handed off. And now we are introduced to our first character. This is Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 26. It says, As the soldiers led Jesus away, 
they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Friends, this morning Luke is again talking to us about what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower, what it means to be a servant of a king that is treated the way Jesus is treated. And Simon is our first picture. It's amazing how much we learn from him from just this one simple statement. We can tell that he is a Jew. Simon is a Jewish name, a Hebrew name. Cyrene, this town he's from, is on the northern coast of Africa. It's it's where a modern-day Libya would be today. And so Simon is a Jew living in Cyrene. From history we know there was a significant Jewish settlement there. And Simon has come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Don't let this fact be lost on you. Enter into Simon's world for just a minute. This is a once in a lifetime journey for most Jews. The dream for every Jew is to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. And so Simon has probably saved and dreamed and planned for years and years and years for this one moment, for this one night when he would be in Jerusalem and celebrate this meal. And on his way into the city, he encounters a crowd and some commotion. And so like many others, he goes to see what is happening when all of a sudden a Roman soldier points to him, grabs him, taps him on the shoulder with a spear. We don't know for sure. But here's what we do know. Simon is suddenly thrust into this horrific scene of blood and brutality in a way he never imagined or intended. Luke tells us he's on his way in from the country. In other words, Simon hasn't seen the miracles. He didn't witness the trial. Simon hasn't heard Jesus teach in the temple. He is most likely completely unfamiliar or at very, uh, at best marginally familiar with the Jesus story. But now, right in this moment, he comes face to face with Jesus. He comes face to face with the cross. And as Simon walks behind Jesus carrying his cross, he is at this point ignorant of what is happening. He does not yet fully understand what all this means. How many of you can relate to Simon? How many of you have ever come face to face with Jesus? Can you remember coming face to face with the cross and all that it entailed? And at some point along your journey, you didn't know, you didn't understand. You didn't even come to Jesus on your own terms He came to you. And you didn't know all that was happening. You didn't have all the answers. You didn't have everything figured out. But you knew one thing. I'm just supposed to walk. I'm just supposed to follow. I'm just supposed to continue to follow Jesus. You see, Simon for Luke is sort of a model disciple for us. Even in his unknowing, he continues to seek. He continues to follow. He walks behind Jesus and carries his cross. You see, Simon, um, we know from other Gospels, eventually becomes a Christian. There's this really cool thing about Simon. I didn't share this in the first service, but I think I'll share it with you. Because you look awake today. Uh, In the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells us about Simon, but he adds this little fact. He says, and then Simon of Cyrene was grabbed to carry the cross. And then he says, the father of Alexander and Rufus. He adds this little extra piece of information. And every scholar agrees, and I have to agree with them, that the reason Mark says the father of Alexander and Rufus is because Mark knows this. The readers know Alexander and Rufus. 
They're going, oh, it's Alexander and Rufus's dad, that guy. Why do they know Alexander and Rufus? Because Alexander and Rufus have become Christ followers themselves. Probably because Simon, through this experience, has become a Christ follower. But Luke doesn't tell us that. Luke just wants us to understand that Simon encounters Jesus and that he does not fully understand what's going on. Friends, to be a follower of Jesus, you do not have to fully understand everything that's going on. You just have to be willing to walk one step at a time, trusting that God will lead the way. Trusting that you'll figure it out on the path. Trusting that God will let you know what you need to know when you need to know it. It says a large number of people followed Jesus, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? First of all, I have to point out that Luke, uh, over and above every other writer in the New Testament, continues to value and lift up the women of Scripture. This is a a patriarchal society. It's a male-dominated culture. We see that throughout the New Testament. But Luke, time and time again, points out how Jesus values and lifts up and encourages the women of this world. He says, daughters of Jerusalem. That's a term of respect. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of affection. And Jesus clearly appreciates them. But he says, do not weep for me. You're crying for all the wrong reasons. You do not, like Simon, fully understand what's happening. He says, weep for yourselves and for your children because these days are coming in which you will wish you never had any children. One of the greatest blessings in, in the, uh, the first century world was to have a child. And yet Jesus says, Days of suffering and struggle are coming such that you are going to wish that you never had a child. How many of you can relate to that? (laughs) Jesus is talking here, friends, about some serious things that are coming their way. In 70 AD, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The Romans are going to come. They are going to annihilate this place. There is going to be suffering like you can't even imagine. Suffering such that pregnancy, one of the greatest gifts in all the world, will become a liability. Jesus says, for if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? In other words, if the Roman army deals with me, a man they know is innocent in this way, if they crucify me when they know full well that I am innocent, what will they do to you then? What will they do to a city that they can clearly see is in rebellion? If you think what's happening to me is bad, oh, you just wait, city. But that's not all that Jesus says. Because in this passage, he's not just talking about Jerusalem. Right in the middle of this section, he says, they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. He quotes this passage from the Old Testament, from Hosea chapter 10. And it's a passage that's talking about the judgment day. The day of the Lord. The day when ultimate judgment will come for all of humanity. And so what Jesus is telling us here is that the fate of Jerusalem, the fate of a city that rejects Jesus, is the ultimate fate for every person who rejects Jesus. 
And this, friends, breaks Jesus' heart. He's saying, don't weep for me. Weep for those who reject me. He's saying, don't cry about the judgment I'm under. Cry about the judgment that you're under. Don't mourn my fate. Mourn the fate of those who do not receive the grace and forgiveness of God offered to them in me. See, the tragedy of the cross is not what happened to Jesus. It's what will happen to those who reject Jesus. And Jesus makes this very clear. And so he says, don't be short-sighted. Don't miss the point of this day. Daughters of Jerusalem, cry and weep and wail and show great concern, but be concerned about the right things. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals. This hill was a common place of execution. It was outside the city of Jerusalem. It's filled with tombs. It was like a giant graveyard. And just to add to the mystique, legend has it that if you looked closely at the side of this hill, there appeared to be the image of a skull etched onto it. This is why in Aramaic they called it Golgotha, the place of the skull. We have called it Calvary, right? Why? Jesus calls it the skull. If Luke calls it the place of the skull and it's called Golgotha, why do we call it Calvary? Well, the, same, the word Golgotha in Latin is the word Calvary. And so this is all the same word in various languages, but essentially, and the most important fact is this, Luke tells us that the God of truth and grace and light is not only crucified, but he's crucified in the center of two criminals on a place called Skull Hill. In other words, do not miss the overwhelming darkness of this moment. Do not miss that all the sin and evil and injustice of the world is being taken on in, on this very place, on this very day. Now, one thing I do want to mention here um, is something that maybe you haven't thought of, and that's this. A lot of times in the Christian world, when we talk about the crucifixion of Jesus, we will spend a lot of time talking about and picturing, even sensationalizing the process of crucifixion that Jesus had to endure. You've probably heard sermons like this. Maybe you've seen movies like this where uh, the, all that Jesus went through is sort of explained and lifted up. The, the beatings and the scourgings and the nails and the thorns on his head. The fact that when a person is crucified, they ultimately die of asphyxiation because they run out of strength to push themselves up to take another breath. And so they, they suffocate to get to death, hanging there on the cross. And so a lot of people will make big deals about this. Do you know who does not make a big deal about this? The gospel writers. Uh, least of all, Luke. Actually, he sort of skims over it. Listen to it again. Uh, amidst all the other information that this passage gives us, this is the passage about the crucifixion. This is the passage where Jesus is nailed to the cross and raised up to die. And this is all the information we get about it. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there. Four words on the details of how this all went down. And, and here's why I think that is. Luke does not want us to get so focused on what happened that we miss why it happened. 
that we miss who it happened to and what it means for you and me. You see, this is not about a moment of suffering for a man. This is about the God of the universe taking on sin and death and evil and injustice for all time. This is not about a moment. This is about eternity. And so we do not get focused on what happened such that we miss why it happened. Here's another thing we learn about following Jesus from Luke in this passage. If we're going to follow a crucified Messiah, we must be willing to walk a path path of selfless sacrifice. It says they crucified him there along with the criminals. And then Luke adds this little piece of information. One on his right and the other on his left. They don't give us a lot of details about the crucifixion itself, but Luke is very clear to point out that Jesus hangs there with one criminal on his right and one criminal on his left. Listen to that language again. Along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. When have you heard this right on his right and left language before? It should be familiar to you. Who else in the gospel narratives has wanted to be on Jesus' right and on Jesus' left? If you're familiar with the scriptures, you'll know this. It's two of Jesus' very own disciples. Two of his core guys, James and John, the brothers, the sons of thunder. like They're really like go-getter guys. They're the ones that come to Jesus and say, Jesus, things seem to be going pretty good. Like, hey, when this whole thing comes to bear, when everything happens the way it's supposed to happen, can, can we take the spots on your right and on your left? Uh, one of the gospel narratives even tells us that they enlist their mother, that mommy even comes in and pulls Jesus aside and says, hey, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can my kids, can my boys get a spot, one on your right and one on your left? And why do they want to be on Jesus' right and left? Because to be on Jesus' right and left in their minds meant that they would have positions of influence and power and authority and privilege and prestige. I'll take one of those slots. But the irony of the cross is this. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be one who is on his right or on his left, you must be willing to give up privilege, prestige, power. This is why when they ask him, Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking for. You have no idea what you're actually requesting. And now in this moment, we start to see it. If you want to be one who's on my right and on my left, you must become one whose life like mine is about saving others in spite of saving yourself. If you want to be on Jesus right or left, then you must be willing to suffer with him. This is perhaps the most important verse in the entire passage, by the way, the one that comes next. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They do not know. If you step back and you consider this entire passage of all the characters that are, that are lifted up, of all the characters that we meet in these verses that we're looking at today, they have one thing in common. None of them know what's going on. They all miss it. None of them have a full picture of what is truly happening, of what God is doing, of what God is up to, of what is being accomplished. They don't even have a clue that this is the most significant moment in human history. All of them miss it. And they express their ignorance in different ways. Some a little more graciously than others, but none of them truly know what's happening. And Jesus says, 
even though they don't know, even though they don't have a clue, even though they did this to me, even though it was their sin that put me here, even though I am hanging on the cross because of their ignorance and selfishness and pride and arrogance, even though they have no idea what they are doing when they betray me and turn their back on me and sin against me, forgive them. Don't make them pay. Don't hold them responsible. Don't let the price of their mistakes and failures and injustice and evil fall on them. Father, let it fall on me. You see, the radical truth of this statement is that Jesus doesn't go to the cross. He doesn't shoulder the entire weight of all the world's wrongs for a people who are begging or even asking or requesting him to do so. No one is sitting at the foot of the cross saying, Jesus, thank you for doing this for me. Thank you for taking this on for me. I am so grateful to you. I am so indebted to you. This is, oh. In fact, he gets the opposite reaction. He does it for people who don't even realize they need it. People who are jeering him and taunting him and ridiculing him in the process. Listen to the very next line. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. You see, what this tells us is this, is that the God of heaven and earth has come to bear the weight of all human sin and the Roman soldiers that stand right in front of him, for them it's just another day at the office. For them, it's just one more criminal, just one more insurrectionist. The mighty nation of Rome has put down. And so they do what they do every single time. They gamble to determine who gets to take home his clothes. Unfortunately, the reaction um, gets even worse from there. We read in verse 35, the people stood watching. This is, and by the way, we kind of have this idea that the religious leaders who are being mean to Jesus, we'll find out in just a minute, they're the bad guys. The people are just watching. What Luke is trying to say here is that the people are just rubberneckers. They don't care. They have no compassion for Jesus. They're just there. It's kind of like when you drive by in your car and there's been an accident and you look and you stare, not because you really care that much, but because you're just so curious. What's happening over there, right? That's what, we, that's what we see from the people here. They stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. You see, as Jesus offers them the most amazing gift they can imagine, they look at him and they say, you're no one. You're no one. Kings were offered wine, only the finest wine. Jesus is offered the cheapest wine possible. They say, if you want to save others, you must first save yourself. And the irony is, is that in order to save others, he must first sacrifice himself. The world says, that makes no sense. In fact, here's what the world will tell you. In any and every case, use the airplane method. Before helping others put on their oxygen mask, make sure that your oxygen mask is on securely, right? The world says, save yourself so you can save others. Now, I know. I know the reason you do that is so that you don't pass out and you can help your children. You don't have to email me later. I got that. I'm just making a point here. The world, though, applies that logic uh, universally. Save yourself. Save yourself and prove that you're the kind of person that can save people. Prove that you're successful and triumphant. And then you can help other people. And Jesus says, that is not the way it works in my kingdom. 
that is not the way I am modeling life to be lived for you. And then there's finally, there's this sign that says the king of the Jews. It's a sign meant to mock him. It's a sign that says, this is what happens to people who claim to be kings. And yet the irony is this. Jesus is not only the king of the Jews. He's the king of the universe. You see, the sign was meant to say, Jesus, he says he's king of the Jews. He's not. But what the sign really says is, He's so much more. He's so much more. You know, uh, there's this uh, trip that I went on a number of years ago with a buddy. We went off to do some missions work down at um, down on the Gulf Coast after Katrina happened. And so a number of guys went and we went down and we stayed for the week and we did some construction, which for me was meager because I have no construction ability at all. But I went and I was there. And um, upon return, I, I drove and so I was dropping my friend off after we got back and we pulled up to his house. And I'll never forget this moment. Um, we pull into the driveway and there posted on his house was this giant banner that his family had made. And it said, welcome home, dad. And there was balloons and his children came running out. He had like 27 kids. No, I think he had six. And they all came running out and his wife was there and she was all made up. And they, and they greeted him. Dad, we're so happy to have you home. And I was like, and then I said hi to him and I, and I left and I drove back to my house. And I was like, wow, that was great. I can't wait to see what my wife's done. <laughs> Well, let's just say when I got home, she was out shopping with the children. There was no one there. And, and I remember this moment where I was like, well, Mike got a banner and a greeting for all his work that he did. And I didn't get anything. And I told Amy later, like, I was really disappointed, you know. And so it's kind of become this joke in our family that every time I go out of town anywhere, she just turns to me and she says, don't expect a banner. <laughs> like... I've been here with the kids all week. Don't expect a banner. So there's this don't expect a banner sort of slogan that we use in our family. Um, really great learning moment for our marriage. But uh, here, here's the point of that. Sometimes as disciples of Jesus, I think we, we want a banner. We expect a banner from people. We expect a banner from the world. And Luke is saying here, Remember the banner that the master received? You remember the banner he got when he took on the sin and injustice and evil of the entire planet, of all of creation? That's some pretty good work. That's some pretty sacrificial stuff. Remember the banner that he got? Expect the same. Expect the same if you follow Christ. Do not expect the world to stand up and applause and applaud your, your selfless, servant, sacrificial life. Because they won't do it. They did not do it for him and they will not do it for you. Disciples of Jesus understand that to follow him is not to focus on saving self or getting self-recognition. But to sacrifice self for the saving of others for no recognition. That is who our Lord is and that is what he calls us to. Now, as a community, we can certainly encourage one another. I'm not saying that we won't do that. But when we serve Christ and expect applause and expect a banner, we forget the path of the master. The story continues, and this is maybe my favorite part. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? 
We are punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, I surrender my will to you. And Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Right? Oh, so good. Friends, the big question here, the big challenge here, the kind of closing statement from Luke for you and me is this. When you come to Jesus, when you encounter the cross, are you like criminal A or are you like criminal B? Both are guilty. Both are condemned because of their sin, but one is still clinging to self-reliance. One criminal, he's still trying to control his life. He's still manipulating God. He's still doing whatever he can to be in control of what his future is. He's still focused on the here and now and his earthly comfort and well-being. But the other criminal, criminal B, he gets it. He gets the gospel. He understands the good news because he understands that he's guilty. And there's nothing he can do to earn or control or deserve the forgiveness and acceptance of God. And so he pins all of his hopes, all of his chances, all of his eternity, not on himself, but on the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. He ultimately hangs there and says, my only hope is in you. There are, there are no caveats. It's, and I, I'd argue this. All of us have been criminal A. Every single person in this room has, has prayed the prayer of criminal A. And for him, it doesn't sound much like a prayer, but maybe it did for you. And it goes something like this. God, if you're really God, if you're really up there, if you really love me, God, I've loved you so much my whole life. Please, with this one time, you just bail me out. Would you just help me? If you'll just do it, if you'll just get me out of this situation, if you'll just get me out of this jam that I'm in, I'll serve you the rest of my life. You see, all of us have this temptation to be just like criminal A and negotiate with God. And what do we barter with? We barter with our own good deeds. We barter with our wit. We barter with our intelligence. We barter with our promises and our commitments. And ultimately what we're saying is this, God, I need your help, but I can earn some of it too. I can take care of it myself. I'm still clinging to my own abilities to forgive myself, to justify myself, to push myself forward. And I may need a little help from you, but I can contribute. And criminal B says, Jesus, I got nothing to offer. Let me tell you why that's good news. It's good news because it's true. It's good news because you don't have anything to offer. And even though you don't, God says, I have everything to offer the good news is even though you have nothing to offer he has everything to offer and so if you will be like criminal b and if you will pin your hopes to the gospel to the grace of god found in jesus christ and his death and resurrection for all your worth and all your value and all the hope of your eternity and future if you will be like criminal B, then you will find the peace and hope and joy and life that only God can give. And Jesus will offer you paradise, paradise. And by paradise, it's not, he's not talking about Disneyland. My family went to Disneyland over spring break and it was a really great trip, but I don't want to be there forever. In fact, if I have to spend more than one day there, I might turn, it might turn into hell real fast. Um, (laughs) 
He's not talking about like this weird Disneyland paradise. He's saying there's paradise for your soul. It's this place where things in your life and in your heart and in your mind are the way God intended them to be. That things between you and the Lord are such that you can have the life he created you to have. That's what he'll offer you if you will not, if you will stop relying on yourself and you will start to rely on him. And so the question as we close this morning is this, which criminal are you today? Criminal A, still fighting for your life, still fighting for, to create your own worth, to create your own value, to prove your righteousness before God or yourself or others? Or have you determined like criminal B that your only hope is in Jesus? Are you like criminal B? Are you surrendered? Are you secure and are you safe in the arms of a God who has paid the price for your sin? And here's the, here's the, here's the thing. We have to remind ourselves that we're like criminal B because the current of our, of our minds and hearts and lives is to slide right back into criminal A, right back into I can justify myself. And so that's why when we gather as a community, every single week we take this meal. It's called the Lord's Supper and it's a meal that declares this. My only hope is in you, Jesus. All my life, all my value, all my acceptance, my eternity is secure only in you and the work you did on the cross. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with you. I'll tell you one more thing as the ushers come forward and start to pass out the elements. I'll tell you one more thing about communion, about the Lord's Supper. Some of you might be wondering this, or if you're not, I want you to wonder it. Simon of Cyrene, it's Friday night. Jesus is walking to the cross. He is coming into the city to celebrate what? Passover, right? He's come all the way to Jerusalem for this meal, for this moment, to celebrate it. But didn't he miss it? Didn't he? Because Jesus celebrated it last night with his disciples on Thursday night. Remember that? That was the night before. So did Jesus do it a night early? Or is Simon late? Do you know the answer? I'm going to tell you. This is so, this is amazing. This is only our God could do things this way. Only our God could line up human history in just this way. The Jews in Jesus' day uh, had a debate. And the Jews in the north, the Jews from Galilee, they did time in one way. They measured days from morning to morning. The southern Jews in Judea, They rejected daylight savings time and they counted days in a different way and they measured days from sundown to sundown. And so this discrepancy between the two groups, just this 12-hour difference, caused them to count Passover on two different evenings. And so the Jews from Galilee, where's where's Jesus from? He's from Galilee. The Jews from Galilee celebrated Passover on... Thursday night, which is why Jesus could sit with his disciples and celebrate the Passover meal and say, I am the Passover lamb who will be slain for the forgiveness of the world. This is my body and my blood given for you. And then the very next night, as people were slaying their lambs, as the southern Jews were slaying their lambs to remember the sacrifice that God made to deliver them from his justice and wrath, to forgive their sins. At the very moment they were slaying their lambs, Jesus was hanging on the cross outside of the city as the ultimate lamb who was slain. Two Passover moments. 
one where Jesus says to his disciples, this meal will now remind you that I am the lamb. Another moment where as they celebrated it, he gave his life as the lamb. Right? And one more thing. What was the main course of the Passover meal? Lamb. So why don't we, why are we not passing out lamb right now? Besides just the logistical mess of that, that Matt would not like a lot. Um, we don't need a lamb. We've already have, we already have our lamb. Our lamb was already slain. The ultimate lamb on this hill, Skull Hill, on the night of Passover, where his blood was shed and his body was given so that your sins, your shortcomings, so that the evil and injustice of the entire world and of all of creation are covered and forgiven through the radical grace of God displayed on the cross. And that's why we come to this meal and we say, Jesus, not because of anything I've done, but only because of who you are and what you did. All my hope is in you. Do you want to be like criminal A again today? Do you want to, instead of pinning your hopes to yourself, pin all of your hope to Jesus? If you do, then let's share together the body and blood, the body of Christ, take and eat. The blood of Christ shed one time on the cross, never to be done again for the forgiveness of sin, of your sin and of the entire world. Take and drink. Father, thank you so much. As we sit for just a minute and remember who you are and what you've done. My prayer, God, is that it would humble us to the point that we can let go of ourselves. That we can stop negotiating with you. That we can stop trying to insert our own will and our own good works and our own desires. And that we can surrender fully to you. I pray, God, that we would be like this criminal who lays it all down. And that, God, when we surrender our lives to you, we will find paradise, even though when you surrendered your life to us, you found a cross. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We praise you. Jesus, we are so indebted to you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.